So this brings us to today, brings us to today, Resurrection Sunday. And the scene opens up with a bit of doom and gloom, right? The worst that could have happened has happened, like Murphy's Law to the max. Jesus has been flogged, tortured, nailed to the cross, and brought back down a limp, lifeless, bleeding body spewing out blood and water out his side. His body has been buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. A heavy stone is rolled to seal the entrance and guards have been placed outside it just in case anyone came to steal the body. Judas, the betrayer, has already hung himself. Peter has already scurried away in fear that they'd come after him as well after denying knowing Jesus three times. The women are grief-stricken, and they're about to go home to prepare embalming spices to treat Jesus' decomposing body. If you expect to see an empty tomb the next day, you don't go home and prepare spices to embalm a body. You expect fully to see a dead and decomposing body. So we're going to open up on that note to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. If you have your Bibles with you, I always highly encourage you, you know, to follow along in your Bibles. I will, I do have some slides for you as well. Opening up to Luke chapter 23, we're going to pick up from the last two verses of chapter 23 and into chapter 24. I'm just going to give you a moment to find your place in your Bibles. Luke chapter 23, verse 55, starting from there until Luke 24, verse 12. All right. So I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And it reads this way. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid with their own eyes. They saw the body of Jesus. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. By the way, this is a sermon for another time. But what does it look like to rest and delight when there's a dead body in a tomb? To trust God, even there, when you've seen with your own eyes, that's definitely Jesus' body. Nope, he didn't evade death. Like, no, this is actually him. Having seen that, to still be able to rest on the Sabbath. That's a sermon for another time. Anyway, let's move on to Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, so on Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. 
And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11. So this is a 12 minus Judas. And to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. James is Jesus' brother. So this is Mary, Jesus' mom. And the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, we've been a Christian for long enough. This is a very, very familiar passage. And in our familiarity or over-familiarity, it begins to lose its wonder and its relevance. So my prayer is, as we go into this passage today, that we would open up our hearts together to, wonder, to the wonder of the miracle of the empty tomb and its massive faith implications for today. Because the resurrection story is more than just a Bible school story that we heard a long time ago or an Easter Sunday sentimental tradition. It is the bedrock of our faith. The historical event attested to by biblical writers and secular historians through the ages. And so very predictively, I have three points for you today. And this is my first point for today. The resurrection is important because it reminds us that we are spiritually dead apart from Christ. We are spiritually dead apart from Christ. One of the questions I asked last week was, what is the one prerequisite for resurrection? What is the one qualifier for resurrection? What is the one thing that you need in order to qualify for resurrection? It is that you need to be dead first. What you and I were in need of, what you and I needed wasn't just mere improvement. We didn't just need self-awareness or self-fulfillment or self-esteem. We were dead and we needed resurrection. We weren't just, quote-unquote, struggling or wrestling or just having a hard time. We were dead and nothing short of a resurrection could fix that. Sometimes we measure ourselves very relatively to others, right? You look over to your neighbor and you're like, man, like I'm a pretty terrible person, but I'm not as bad as Jacob here, like... Like he, he's got to get his act together, right? So we kind of relatively just compare ourselves to each other, right? Or at, like conversely, we could look at someone and be like, Westfall, wow, he's like such a man of God. Like I'm just never going <laughs> to... He needs a bit of humility though. But, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, you look at someone, you're like, man, I'm just never going to get there. It just feels so unreachable. And so... This is us in our own way trying to measure ourselves relatively to one another. But that is as ridiculous as one dead person comparing themselves to another dead person, right? It's like, man, yeah, I'm dead, but they're deader, right? 
No, there's no thing as deader. You're alive or you're dead. There's no more dead than or less dead than. You are dead. And this is such an important point for us to start in because the gospel strips us of all boasting in our own works. The gospel strips us of all earning and striving and jostling for acceptance through our own means. The apostle Paul himself said that he had a shining resume, right? He was the top of the top, elite of the elite, righteous of the righteous. He was a promising new star of the religious circle. But all of that was a loss. All of that was garbage. Literally, the, the, the word in Greek is excrement. It is crap. Basically, he said, all of this is crap. Everything that I've accrued for myself is crap compared to knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. This is probably the holiest person that you know, the most religious, well-respected, well-known person that you know. And he himself is saying that all of this, it doesn't matter. I am dead in my trespasses. I am dead in my sins. All these things don't matter at all. So I often use this analogy, right? Sometimes we have this picture that when we are lost and apart from Christ, we are drowning in this ocean, right? We're swallowing water. We're flailing our arms for dear life. And then Jesus comes on a rescue boat and he rescues us. That's often a picture and an analogy that people will use. But what is more accurate, actually, is that we were a dead body floating face down on that ocean, bloated from not having, from having been long dead, not a spark of life in your limbs, nothing, no breath in your lungs to even cry out for help, not a tremor or rumor of a heartbeat. You were dead and Jesus came. And just like he did with Lazarus, he did with us. He called Lazarus, come forth. He said, Susie, come forth. He said, Daniel, come forth. This is resurrection power. This is, there's no way to earn a resurrection. You have to simply receive it. And so he is the one who called us out of the tomb into the light of day, out of our darkness and into his marvelous light. You and I were dead. Dead in our sins, hopeless in our condition, too far gone for any minor tweaks and repairs. Some, you know, New Year's, uh, New Year's resolutions here and a little better habits here, a little polishing here, a little mending here. We were too far gone for that. We were dead in our sins. And I need to make this so clear because this day and age In a lot of Christian circles, this is not preached. We let the world tell us, you just need to find out who you are. You just need to find your real self, you know? You just need a little bit more self-awareness, a little bit more therapy. But the truth of the matter is, you're going to be a well-therapied dead person if you don't have Jesus. What you and I needed was Jesus Because all forgiveness, all hope for a new beginning, all dying of the old so that the new can come, it's only 
found in Jesus. There's a trend in modern day Christianity to downplay. We downplay our absolute desperate need for a crucified savior. And in turn, we receive some good rules to live by, you know, some good maxims to make us feel better about ourselves, boost our self-esteem, some good self-help books and meditation gurus to help us feel the peace that we're longing to feel. But don't let them do that because they're robbing you of the gruesome, bloody death that your sins died on that cross. And the thundering, earth-shaking, blindingly glorious resurrection into true life and oneness with God marked by that empty tomb. Christianity is the only faith that treats your fallen state and your depravity with absolute honesty and justice. There's no sugarcoating in the gospel. It treats your fallen state and your depravity with absolute honesty and justice. And at the same time, Christianity is the only faith that in turn gives you absolute mercy, raising us to unthinkable heights now seated with God in heavenly places. The way that I think about it is the longer I walk as a Christian, the more I realize like, wow, I thought I was bad, but I'm actually, I'm actually pretty like worse than I thought my, my original state, my, my sinful self is actually worse than I thought. Just when I think I'm like, oh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm better. Like, oh, there's a thing of, thing of pride or envy and jealousy here, or, you know, these things will come up. And so the longer I walk as a Christian, the more I realize I'm actually worse than I thought. When I first got saved, I was like, I'm not that bad, but I guess I'll try this Jesus thing. But the longer I walk as a Christian, the more I realize like, wow, I really needed Jesus. Like I really, really needed Jesus. And so the more I realize just how hopeless my state was, the more I begin to realize just how high and glorious and beautiful his redemption for me is. His love that is unconditional for me, it makes less and less sense the longer I walk as a Christian. John Stott, in the cross of Christ, he says this, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. And God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. This is the gospel. This is what it means when we say that we are Christians and we're Christ followers and we are born again. It's not that we are adhering to a religion. It's not that we are adhering to a set of principles. It is fully knowing that apart from Christ, we are a lost case. We were dead in our sins. Even before you knew to call out for him, he died for you. Even before little Susie knew that she needed Jesus, Jesus died for little Susie. 
And this is what it means to cling to the cross. This is what it means for us to cry out for resurrection, fully knowing that we were dead in our sins and our transgressions. The second reason why the resurrection is important for us to meditate on, not just during Easter, but as people who believe in God, is because the resurrection foreshadows our eternal future with Christ. It foreshadows, it paints us a vivid picture of what it's going to look like for you and me. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We're going to be the secondborn. We're going to be the thirdborn, fourthborn. He is the firstborn. We're going to follow in his footsteps. Our future, our resurrection, our eternal life is foreshadowed and prefigured by Christ. Jesus Christ's resurrection paints for us a picture of what is to come for you and I because we have a forerunner, a pioneer, a brother who has gone before us and paved a way for us. And in time, surely we will follow. This is all over the Bible. Colossians 1 says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn among the dead and we will surely follow suit. John 11 says that he is the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 6 promises that God the Father raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 1 Corinthians 15 says that death came through one man, Adam, and the resurrection of the dead also came from one man, Jesus Christ, the new Adam. Romans 6 says that if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It is written, if we have been united with him in a death like, th- like his, we will also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that this is the race that he has set before us. This is the track that he has set before us that we will run to the end. Ephesians 2 says that God has raised us up with Jesus And seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, not this age, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We haven't seen anything yet. Even the best of our experiences here in this lifetime is nothing but scratching the surface. It's an appetizer for the meal that is to come. You and I have been born again into eternal life. And where Jesus goes, whether it be to death or through resurrection, we will also follow. We follow him into his death and we follow him into his glory. When we look around at the world around us, we feel like we have so much in common with everybody, right? People who look like us, people who have the same passions, People have similar personalities and quirks. People with similar career paths. And we go through similar stages in life. We wrestle with the same life problems. But no matter how great these similarities are, when the believer stands side by side with an unbeliever, someone who does not profess faith in his crucified Savior, there's one very, very profound 
difference. And that is our destination. Our future. And we don't say this with pride or arrogance. We say this with absolute humility because a God who owed us nothing, he gave us everything. We didn't deserve forgiveness. We say this with absolute humility. Our destiny is different from the world's. Our future is different from the world's. We can say that with absolute humility, but also absolute confidence. Because those he has set free are free indeed. Those he has rescued will be with him. Those he has set apart will see his face. That is the promise that is written in the word of God. So we live from this place of absolute humility, but also absolute confidence because Jesus himself, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, according to Ephesians. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is about is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. This is the reason why we have confidence in trials. This is the reason why we have hope in our sufferings. This is the reason we have help in times of trouble. We have a hope. We have a future. We have a reward that is coming. And a redeemer who will in due time make all things new. So we were hopelessly and desperately dead. And nothing short of resurrection could have saved us. And now on this side of the cross, nothing short of resurrection awaits us as believers. Lastly, this is my last point for today. And I don't mean to be like a very, like very obvious. This is my, I hope we don't go through today, not really emphasizing this point. The resurrection testifies that Jesus is alive. Jesus Christ, in his risen, glorified, resurrected body, was seen by at least 500 people between his resurrection and his ascension. The four gospels began circulating while many of these eyewitnesses were still alive to tell the story and to contradict it if it were false. The body of Jesus was never found. If it had been, it would have most certainly been the definitive proof that Jesus was a liar and an imposter. But 2,000 years of scholars and skeptics alike have not been able to disprove and dethrone the Bible's claim that the tomb was empty and is still empty to this day probably most compelling to me is that what a bunch of scared for their lives men who are hiding a bunch of men who are saying let's just go back to fishing and forget this thing ever happened what they saw was so compelling so undeniable so miraculous and earth-shattering that these mere fishermen and tax collectors became relentless fearless passionate 
absolutely convinced men and women who preached the resurrected Christ, even in the face of persecution and even unto death. What can change a coward into an evangelist? The resurrection of Christ. Can any other religion claim this? Can any other religion claim an empty tomb? There's a tomb in Saudi Arabia that testifies that Muhammad is dead. There's a tomb in China that testifies that Buddha is dead. There's a cemetery in Illinois that testify that John Smith, the founder of the Mormon faith, is dead. But an empty tomb in Jerusalem testifies that Jesus is alive. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're not praying in the name of someone who is dead and gone. We're not being sentimental and giving a nod to an idol made of wood or stone that is blind and mute and powerless. We're praying to the risen lamb, the commander of the angel armies, the one who right now is seated at the right hand of God, the father almighty, the only one who could pay for our sins and purchase our freedom. The, we worship a God who was and is and is to come a God who is alive and breathing and moving and at work even right now. A God who says who he says he is. The imperishable seed, the great I am. Not the I was or I will someday be. The great I am. The firstborn among the dead. The crucified and risen Savior that forever lives to intercede for us. And one day, soon and very soon, will come back again. This is the God that we worship. We're not worshiping a dead God. This is not a dead religion. We are worshiping a God who is alive. And the empty tomb testifies of that. And so together with all the saints, we say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive all the glory, all the power, all the honor, and all the praise. There is one God and one God alone, and he is alive today. Let's rise to our feet as we close with a song of worship today. Jesus, would you be glorified? Jesus, would you be enthroned in our worship and our praises? Jesus, would you be center in our hearts? Would you remind us? Would you remind us of the gospel? That there was a bloody cross that paid for our sins. And an empty tomb that sealed our salvation. That sealed our resurrection. And that is what we fix our eyes on today. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the bridegroom to come receive his bride that is pure and spotless and waiting for him. May God the Father receive all the glory from every tribe, every tongue. May every knee bow down and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. We thank you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.